Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, the book of Matthew, chapter 4, continued. The early church father, Chrysostom, said this about the temptations of Christ. He said, The devil begins with the temptation to indulge the belly. By this same means he has cast out the first man, and by this means many are still cast out. In our study of Matthew chapter 4, immediately Yeshua is led into three temptations. As Christosom comments, it is not a coincidence that Yeshua and the first man, Adam, or better, the first couple, were tempted with food by the evil one. Food is a powerful need in humans, and therefore can be a powerful force in swaying humans. And yet, Chrysostom sees there is more to food than only the nutrition and the calories that it necessarily provides. Now, for those who have studied Torah with me, and I hope you all have because you're going to get so much more out of any study of the New Testament, you'll recall that Adam and Eve were originally given by God what I call a one law Torah. And what was the first and only law God gave to them while they were still being allowed to inhabit the Garden of Eden? Do not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One law. And of course, they broke it. The breaking of that law is known in various church doctrines as the fall of man, the fall from grace, a few other titles. So the first law ever given to mankind involved diet, food. And the breaking of the law about food completely redirected the destiny of all humanity in innumerable and painful ways it was going to require a Redeemer to fix it. Centuries later, at Mount Sinai, God would give Israel a more extensive set of laws regarding diet. Laws that have come to be popularly known as kosher food laws. Now nearly all of the earliest church fathers whose commentaries on Matthew's Gospel have survived, they noticed this connection between Adam and Christ. And some of them noticed this matter of food as the object of a temptation that they both faced. In Adam's case, he had an abundance of food in the garden. Still, when the devil 
tempted him by making this one specific food off limits, Adam succumbed to it. While in Christ's case of the temptation in the wilderness, he had no food. This starving man was also tempted by the devil by telling him to just turn these stones into food to satisfy his gnawing hunger, which apparently Yeshua could have done. He did not dispute Satan on this matter except that he should not do such a thing. Yeshua resisted the temptation and he was victorious. I find it instructional that the early church fathers were so very aware of, of this relationship between Adam and Yeshua's temptations, and that food was the object of the first temptation for both of them. But then these same church fathers seem to ignore or rationalize away that God goes on in the Torah to carefully lay out what the diet for humans ought and ought not to be. That is what God ordains as permissible for eating versus what is forbidden. One could argue that this God-commanded diet was only meant for Hebrews. Perhaps that Gentile believers in Yeshua are also to be included along with the Hebrews. I would respond that all mankind was meant to eat this way. However, it is logical, it is human nature, that only those who trust in the God of Israel and believe His Word would even think to follow the food laws. All others would find such instructions as irrelevant to them. So fellow believers, fellow followers of Jesus of Nazareth, what say you? I say, unequivocally, we are to eat biblically kosher. Is it sin? Big question. Is it sin not to follow those food laws? Of course it is. The definition of sin is to disobey God's commandments. Note, I say, biblically kosher food commandments, because I do not accept this large body of man-made rabbinical tradition about kosher eating that has taken just one chapter in Leviticus concerning food and turned it into scores of pages of arcane eating rules. You know, it's a curious truth. <clears throat> that even in the secular world of medical science, it is said, we are what we eat. It has been understood for a long time that our diet plays a significant role in our lives. Although doctors and scientists and the nutritionists, well, they're speaking only of our physical, biological lives, God views diet as affecting primarily our spiritual 
lives. And you know what? That did not start at Mount Sinai. It started in the Garden of Eden. In the spiritual realm, the Lord is the first to tell us that in His eyes, we are what we eat. On the surface, this matter of food is a rather simplistic one. God has set down what, what is food for humans and what is not. Now, edibility, that's not the point of the food selection process. And for the most part, neither are health benefits. God in His supremacy and perfection has deemed and commanded the proper human diet. As believers in Him, see, all that's really left for us to decide is, will we obey or will we not? Yes, the issue is, hear me, about the food laws, obedience versus sin. It's nothing else. I mean, don't be searching for a scientific rationale for whether you should or should not follow the biblical food laws. Lots of things we could eat are no doubt delicious, physically healthy. Rather, be considering your position before the Lord. Whether you want to be seen by Him as faithful or not. God did not set down the food laws as an option. Adam found that out the hard way. And we've all been afflicted by his rebellious act ever since. Yeshua, in the most stressful and painful of circumstances, chose to trust and obey his Father. So he refused to take the devil's bait in order to satisfy his want of food. We've all benefited by that faithful act of our Savior ever since. The second temptation of Christ involves Satan taking him up to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, fighting him to jump off, taunting him. If he was truly God's son, why his father would just send angels to catch him. The devil was trying to sow seeds of doubt into Yeshua by employing the if word. But he swatted that one away by quoting God's commandment in Deuteronomy 6.16 that man should not put God on trial by doing such a foolish thing as jumping off a high place and then expecting God to catch us. The early church father, Hilary of Poitiers, at about the turn of the third to the fourth century, made this fascinating observation in his commentary on Matthew, Hillary says he, meaning the devil, set him, Christ, on the pinnacle of the temple as if towering over the laws and the prophets. 
In other words, Satan indeed was trying to put himself above God's laws and commandments, which by definition means he was trying to put God on trial. I mean, let that gestate for just a few seconds. When we think that we, mere created beings, can set aside our Creator's laws and commands by manufacturing new doctrines, new commands that please us better, we are putting God on trial. We are putting ourselves towering towering above God, towering over His laws and commandments. Thus, we are behaving exactly as the devil did in this second temptation of Christ. In the very next chapter of Matthew, which begins Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua makes sure that His followers understand now what I just told you. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. You've heard this before. Do not think, I've come to abolish the Torah of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So even Christ did not put himself above God's laws and commands, such that he could add to or subtract from them. Even though the vast bulk of the institutional church has for centuries not been faithful or truthful on this matter. Instead, they have instituted new man-made doctrines that has told billions of Christians that for them, for us, God's laws and commandments are dead. They're gone because Christ did away with them. But Christ himself said, said otherwise. In Matthew 4, when Yeshua fights the devil, he specifically uses scripture passages from the Torah as his weapon. Now, why, if his purpose was to abolish the Torah, would he use it as an example for us to follow? Why would he soon follow up in his Sermon on the Mount and specifically declare that not only he did not come with the purpose of abolishing the Torah and the prophets, but also with a warning that whoever might think to disobey these laws and commandments of the Torah and teach others to do so, is going to find him or herself occupying the lowest possible rung on the heavenly ladder in God's kingdom society. You know, it pains me to no end that the church has done such a damaging, unscriptural thing 
primarily with the purpose of trying to achieve Gentile superiority over the early church's Jewish leadership. That's what it was all about. It has led to nothing but disobedience and a weakening of Christian faith. But now you know the truth. And you are seeing it for yourself in God's Word. So now how you respond to this scriptural knowledge is going to have much to do with your personal eternal future. And where you might be placed within God's kingdom structure. The third temptation of Christ was that the devil offered Yeshua rulership over the entire planet in exchange for bowing down to him. Jesus' response was, Away with you, Satan, or more popularly, Get behind me, Satan. Next we read, Then the adversary let him alone. In an anonymous Christian commentary on Matthew, written sometime in the 5th century, a work that has been labeled by theologians as the incomplete work on Matthew, homily number 5, its unknown writer offers us this uplifting perspective about what happened with Yeshua and how all that applies to us. He says this, he, meaning Christ, put an end to the devil's tempting when he said, Get behind me, Satan. The devil could progress no further with his temptation. But can we rightly understand and reasonably ascertain that he withdrew not as though in obedience to the command? Rather, it was the divinity of Christ or the Holy Spirit in Christ who drove away the devil. See, this gives us great consolation. For the devil cannot tempt God's people as long as he wishes. He can tempt them only so long as Christ or the Holy Spirit who is in them allows him to. I mean, what a wonderful and important point of view for us to grasp. It is not the mechanical quoting of scripture passages that blocks the devil. Just as it is not the mechanical doing of God's laws and commands that satisfies the Lord. When we are saved, and Christ or the Holy Spirit, however we choose to phrase it, dwells within us, and when as believers we find occasion to rebuke the devil's temptations by speaking God's word to him, it is the power of God within us that the devil flees from, not from our human ability to remember and quote it. So now let's move on to Matthew chapter 4 to learn about what follows the temptation of Christ. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 11. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1227. We're going to start at verse 11. Go to the end. Then the adversary let him alone. 
and angels came and took care of him. When Yeshua heard that Yochanan, John, had been put in prison, he returned to the Galilee. But he left Nazareth and Nazareth and came to live in Capernaum, that's uh, Capernaum, a lakeshore town near the boundary between Zebulun and Naphtali. This happened in order to fulfill what Yeshayahu, Isaiah, the prophet, had said. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, toward the lake, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Goyim, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those living in the region, in the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time on, Yeshua began proclaiming, Turn from your sins to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Yeshua walked by Lake Kinneret, he saw two brothers who were fishermen, Shimon, known as Kepha, and his brother Andrew, throwing their net into the lake. Yeshua said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers for men. At once they left their nets and went with him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, Yaakov ben Zavdai, sometimes called James, and Yochanan, John, another John, his brother, in the boat with their father Zavdai, repairing their nets. And he called them. And at once they left the boat and their father and went with Yeshua. Yeshua went all over the Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing people from every kind of disease and sickness. Word of him spread throughout all Syria. People brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, those held in the power of demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Huge crowds followed him from the Galilee, the ten towns, that is the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judah, and even Ever Har Yadan, across the Jordan. Okay, I want to remark here that um, the implication that after Satan withdrew and let Jesus alone, that angels ministered to him. I think that's sort of mysterious. I mean, how exactly did angels minister to him? Did they bring him food? Did they comfort him in some way? Did they congratulate him or praise him? I mean, why couldn't regular humans, instead of angels, do most of this for him? I don't think I have a solid enough answer to this, because there's simply no further information provided to us. Yet, let's not overlook the plain matter that apparently Yeshua, himself also being God, needed to be ministered to. You know, it can be very complicated and challenging to either <laughs> separate or combine Yeshua's humanity with his divinity and then speak of it and think of it in some orderly, comprehensible way. Since God has no needs, then in this case, it can only be that Jesus, the human being, did. 
We're not told how long it was between each of the three temptations or if they occurred in rapid succession. You know, after a person has not eaten in 40 days, a couple of hearty meals doesn't bring a person back to good health. So perhaps a time of regaining his physical strength had something to do with the ministration of the angels. I suspect that it also had to do with his spirit and his emotions. I mean, I can't even imagine the stress he was under, the physical exhaustion that accompanied it. I mean, he knew the weight of the world and the eternal fate of humanity rest upon his shoulders. The devil tried to take advantage of this fact. I think the angels came to give Jesus rest. Rest in a way that can only come from heaven. Verse 12 now just shifts the subject. Here we learn that John the Baptist has been arrested, but we're not given any particulars about it. Later on in chapter 14, Matthew will address this in more detail as kind of a flashback. Nonetheless, John's arrest occurred while Yeshua was in Judea, and so it became a signal to Yeshua that he needed to leave and go back home to the Galilee. Now, some commentators see what Yeshua did as fleeing because he is so intimately connected to John that he thinks he's going to be the next one to be arrested. And yet, the Galilee isn't all that far away. And if Antipas really wanted to find Yeshua and arrest him, it wouldn't have been that terribly difficult. Others think that the arrest of John and Jesus going back to the Galilee are not necessarily linked. It's just that Matthew is only telling us two separate things. First, John has been in prison. Second, Jesus went back to the Galilee to begin his ministry. I'm not at all sure which is the case. However, the next verse may give us some more information that gives us at least a, a clue about it. Verse 13 says he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, but then moved to Capernaum. Was he doing this to evade the authorities? Perhaps. But Matthew says in verse 14 that the reason for his move was in order to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah. In other words, some of the things that Christ did, he did purposely for little other reason than to fulfill ancient messianic prophecies concerning his coming and his mission as Israel's Messiah. Capernaum is an English translation of the Hebrew Kafar Nahum, which means the village of Nahum. The village was located on the Sea of Galilee. As many of you know, it's still there. So a goodly part of its economy depended on fishing. That Matthew tells us that the village 
was near the border between the tribal territories allotted to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali further indicates that Matthew resided in the Holy Land and he was quite studied in the Hebrew Bible because in no way were those tribal territories meaningful any longer to most Jews. I mean, once the Assyrians conquered the north of Israel towards the end of the 8th century BC, then 130 years later, the Babylonians conquered the south. Well, the tribal territory names, other than for Judah, were mostly erased. Whatever boundaries they had been given by Moses and Joshua disappeared. This all happened centuries before Christ's era. So mention of the tribal territories of Zebulun and Naphtali solidifies that Matthew's intended audience was Jews. Because the old tribal geography and these old tribal names would have had no meaning outside of the Jewish population. Next Matthew quotes the pertinent section of the prophecy that he says Jesus is fulfilling by his moving to Capernaum. And it comes from Isaiah chapters 8 and 9. Now, most believers have heard this passage in Matthew a number of times. However, remembering that this came from a prophet that lived seven centuries earlier, and the circumstances of his day were entirely different than they were in Christ's era, I want to take the time to put this prophecy into context because it becomes all the more meaningful. I'd like for you to read all of Isaiah 8, the first six verses of 9. So turn your Bibles there now. I want you to read along with me. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, and go all the way through it and read the first few verses of Isaiah 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're looking at page 447. 447. Isaiah chapter 8, starting with verse 1. We're going to go through the first, all through this and the first couple of verses of 9. I really want you to follow with me in your own Bible. Adonai said to me, Take a large tablet, write on it in easily readable letters, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. The spoil hurries, the prey speeds along. I had it witnessed for me by reliable witnesses Uriah the Kohen, the priest, Zechariah, the son of Zerachiah. Then I had sexual relations with my wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And Adonai said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Because before the child knows how to cry, Abba and Ema, father and mother, the riches of Damasek, that's Damascus, and the spoil of Shomron, that's Samaria, will be carried off and given to the king of Asher. Syria. Adonai went on speaking and he said more to me. Since this people has rejected the gently flowing waters from Shiloh, 
and takes joy in Retzin and the son of Ramalia, how Adonai, now Adonai will bring upon them the mighty flood waters of the Euphrates River, that is, the king of Asher, Assyria, and his power. It will rise above all its channels, overflow all its banks, it will sweep through Judah, flooding everything, passing on. It will reach up, even up to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the whole expanse of the land. God is with us. You may make an uproar, peoples, but you will be shattered. Listen, all of you from distant lands. Arm yourselves, but you'll be shattered. Yes, arm yourselves, but you will be shattered. Devise a plan. It'll come to nothing. Say anything you like. It won't happen, because God is with us. For this is what Adonai said to me, speaking with a strong hand, warning me not to live the way this people does. Don't regard as alliance what this people calls alliance. Don't fear what they fear, or be awestruck by it. But Adonai Sevaot, consecrate him. Let him be the object of your fear and awe. He is there to be a sanctuary, but for both the houses of Israel. He will be a stone to stumble over, a rock obstructing their way, a trap, a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many of them will stumble and fall, be broken and trapped and captured. Wrap up this document, confine its teaching to those I have instructed. I will wait for Adonai, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Yes, I will look for him. Meanwhile, I and the children whom Adonai has given me will become for Israel signs and wonders from Adonai Zebaot living on Mount Zion. So when they tell you to consult those squeaking, squawking mediums and fortune tellers, you are to answer, shouldn't a people seek their God? Must the living ask the dead for teaching and instruction? For they will indeed give you this unenlightened suggestion. Distressed and hungry, they will pass through the land. And because of their hunger, they will grow angry and cursed by their king and by their God. But whether they look up to God or down at earth, they will see only trouble and darkness, anguish, gloom, pervasive darkness. But there will be no more gloom for those who are now in anguish. In the past, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali were regarded lightly, but in the future, he will honor the way to the lake beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the nations. The people living in great darkness have seen a great light, and upon those living in the land that lies in the shadow of death, light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice in your presence as if rejoicing at harvest time, the way men rejoice when dividing up spoil. For the yoke that weighed them down, the bar across their shoulders, and their driver's goad you have broken, as on the day of Midian's defeat. For all the boots of soldiers marching, and every cloak rolled in blood is destined for burning. Fuel for fire, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, dominion will rest on his shoulders, and he will be given the name Pele Yoetz El Gobar, 
Aviad Shalom, wonder of a counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, prince of peace. In order to extend the dominion and perpetrate the peace on the throne and kingdom of David, to secure it, to sustain it through justice and righteousness henceforth and forever. The zeal of Adonai Zebaot will accomplish this. Now the mention of Asher at the beginning is speaking of the Assyrian kingdom that Isaiah says is going to conquer the ten northern tribes of Israel and carry them off. History shows they were scattered all over Asia and northern Africa. This exile from their land is judgment upon all Israel by Jehovah for their idolatry and their unfaithfulness. And at the same time, when the Lord, while the Lord has prepared and drawn in Gentile nations to be the earthly sword of God's judgment, He's going to shatter them for being so hard on His people. So God sort of says to these Gentile nations, go ahead, laugh now. You're not going to be laughing later. The people of Israel, however, are oblivious. They're oblivious to their own rebellion and idolatry and the coming consequences, even though God has sent prophets, including Isaiah, to warn them. The twelve tribes are like a a disabled ship bobbing around on a churning sea having lost its rudder. Each man is doing what's right in his own eyes. The ten northern tribes especially have been blatantly bowing down to other gods along with insincerely worshiping Jehovah for some time. And the two tribes that formed Judah are being slowly drawn into this same destructive behavior. Finally, the breaking point is reached. What Isaiah describes next, then, is the Israelites reaching out frantically in all directions for the solutions to their growing frustrations and misfortunes and overwhelming problems. They try pressuring their prophets into contacting the dead for answers. They try sacrifice to other gods, hoping for their favor. They quit consulting God's word for direction, and they look to others, or even to themselves. There's only one word to describe the condition of Israel at this time. Confusion. Starting in Isaiah 8, verse 11. The prophet says that God told him that even though though these are Isaiah's own people, he's not to join them in this nonsense. Don't listen to the conspiracy theories. Don't buy in. Don't dread what these people dread. Don't fear what these leaders fear. In other words, Don't listen to all the noise of a disjointed society and become as anxiety-driven as they are. 
I mean, what perfect wisdom that is for us, God's believer in our day. What Israel was doing 2,700 years ago sounds amazingly similar to what the entire world is doing today. And it has led to a state of confusion and chaos that even the church has not escaped. Hear and do what God says to us, His worshipers. We have no choice but to observe what's occurring all around us, but we don't have to participate in it. Even more, we are to seek the Lord God of Israel, not other gods, for answers and for wisdom. We're not to run after the gods of other religions, the gods of science and technology, the gods of prosperity, the gods of government, the gods of political ideology, nor the gods of self or self-pleasure. The only remedy for the ever-shifting sands of confusion is to reverse course and return to the safety of the rock. Then we arrive at Isaiah 8, verse 23. Time passes. God's people wait for their deliverance. They wait. More time than the people of Israel thought would pass drifts by at glacial speed. Naturally, they hoped that what Isaiah told them was going to happen, maybe it would play out in a few months. Maybe just a few years, but no. 700 years <laughs> goes by. To the point that the people now living in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, in Yeshua's time that was best known as the Upper Galilee, are barely aware of whose tribal lands they stand upon. In fact, it's not the tribal members of Zebulun and Naphtali who even live there anymore. Because during Yeshua's day, those tribes had still not returned to their land, but rather they remained in exile. Those other people who live there consist of not just a few Gentiles, and they don't know the land's history. As we've arrived at the biblical passage that forms verses 15 and 16 in Matthew chapter 4, and then we compare it to Isaiah 8 and 9, we note first of all that Matthew paraphrases Isaiah's prophecy for his own purpose, and he applies it to Capernaum and to the surrounding areas and to Yeshua as the Messiah. This is another use of remez or perhaps drash in Bible interpretation. Those areas that the Isaiah prophecy describes are in Christ's era the several Jewish lakefront villages. Lake is a term that's used to this day in Israel when speaking about what Gentiles call the Sea of Galilee. The passage also describes areas on the east side of the Jordan River because in 700 BC Israel still held 
substantial tribal ter territories there, but that was no longer the case in Yeshua's day. And then finally, we hear of the Galilee of the Gentiles. Because so many Gentiles occupied areas around the west side of the Sea of Galilee, even more so on the east side. The reality is Rome was in charge of that entire region. Now, all of these areas around the Galilee that Isaiah describes are home to the people he says have been walking in great darkness. But now, these same people have seen a great light. See, in Hebrew, the word darkness, as it's used in Isaiah's prophecy, is hoshek. This is not a word that speaks of the darkness of nighttime or the darkness of a darkened room. Rather, hoshek is used to describe obscurity, oppression, deception. So the great darkness is a great spiritual darkness. It's evil. It's shared by Israelites and Gentiles alike. And the great light that Isaiah prophesies about is in its original Hebrew, or, O-W-R, or. It is a type of light. It's not the kind that comes from the sun or from a torch or from a light bulb. Rather, or means enlightenment, truth. Revelation, the qualities of good that are the foundation of God's and Messiah's nature. These are the same words in Hebrew used to describe various aspects of Israel's experience in Egypt. Matthew takes the term great light in Isaiah's prophecy to mean the Messiah. And I have no doubt that is exactly what Isaiah was prophesying. And when we hear about those living in the region as living in the shadow of death, I think the ultimate meaning is the shadow of eternal death. A spiritual death is being contemplated, much more than physical death, because all humans are going to experience that. Also because thus far in Isaiah's prophecy, the terms concerning the dark condition of the people and then the arrival of the great light, these are spiritual terms. In verse 17, we have Yeshua using the same words that John the Baptist used as he called people to his baptism. Turn from your sins to God, and the kingdom of God is near. He uses the same words as John, because that is exactly what his purpose was for his for coming. That's why he was sent. Those same words are not on the lips of the prophets that prepare the way for Yeshua's return at the end of days. Nor are they what Yeshua will speak when he comes back in power and glory. This is because upon his first appearance, he came as his father's agent 
to redeem. The next time he comes, his return, he comes as his father's agent to carry out God's wrath and vengeance. First coming salvation, second coming judgment. Therefore, the message is that God's kingdom on earth has just been inaugurated. And the only means to gain membership is to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven or of God is not a place. It's not like an enormous Shangri-La. <laughs> Rather, it represents God's rule that itself is expressed in the lives of human beings. If you're a believer, the kingdom of God is already within you. And while that kingdom is for now fully spiritual in nature, in time it's going to transform. And it will become the spiritual and the physical condition of the new heavens and new earth. This is why this concept that we find playing out in Matthew that the kingdom of heaven is present, it is coming, and it's also future, can be so confusing. And the subject, it's the subject of several varying church doctrines that usually focuses just on one, maybe two, of those three aspects of it. Now, although I'll have more to say about this as our lessons in Matthew continue, for now just know that it was John the Baptist who inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. John the Baptist. But it's Yeshua, and later with the help of his disciples, then and now, who are expanding the kingdom. Expanding the kingdom by means of spreading the good news. Then finally, the kingdom reaches its completed form when the old heavens and old earth pass away to make room for the new heavens and the new earth. That's the plan. I'll say this another way. The kingdom of heaven does not belong only to a moment in history but rather it consists of its establishment by means of a series of events over a period of time. That time period is not precisely specified. However, the so-called end times prophets, such as Daniel and Ezekiel, together with the book of Revelation, give to us the major milestone events and in some semblance of their order. Now, before I move on to the next verse, I want to say something here. How fortunate we are and continue to be. We still live in an extended era that began around 30 AD, whereby repentance and sincere trust in God and His Son deliver us from the coming wrath of God. We still live 
in an extended era when we as God's worshipers can tell others. Some who we know and love, some who we don't know at all, about Yeshua and the kingdom of heaven, and they still have the opportunity to repent, to be delivered from the coming wrath of God. But the time is coming when this option and opportunity ends. No exceptions. Verse 18 speaks of when Yeshua began his ministry in earnest, he did so by choosing some disciples. We are told that he walked along Lake Kinneret, or as the Greek manuscripts have it, the Sea of Tiberias. English versions call it the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> now, Kinneret is based on the Hebrew word kinar, which means harp. The lake was harp shaped in Jesus' day. Calling it the Sea of Tiberias is because Tiberias was the name of a large city located near the lake's southwestern shore. And the Sea of Galilee was called that, well, for the obvious reason that the large lake was located in the Galilee. Yeshua spotted a couple of brothers, fishermen. Who were fishing at the time, and he offered to make them fishes of men. One was called Andrew. The other in English is called Simon Peter. In Hebrew, Simon Peter is Shimon Kepha. Kepha is actually an Aramaic word that means rock. Now in Greek, the word rock is Petros. Petros became Peter in English. Sometimes we'll see his name as Cephas. And we're told that these two brothers did not hesitate. They left their net and they followed Yeshua. As the four Gospels tend to do, they agree on substance, but not always on detail. The Gospel of John has Yeshua gaining his first two disciples slightly differently than how Matthew frames it. Listen to John. 135 to 42. The next day, Yochanan, uh, John, was again standing with, this is John the Baptist, by the way, was again standing with two of his disciples. On seeing Yeshua walking by, he said, Look, God's Lamb. And his two disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, heard him speaking and they followed Yeshua. Yeshua turned and saw them following him and he asked, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. So they went, they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Now, one of the two who had heard Yochanan, again, talking about John the Baptist here, and had followed Yeshua was Andrew. The brother of Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter. The first thing he did was to find his brother Shimon and tell him, We've found the Messiah. The word means one who's been anointed. He took him to Yeshua. Looking at him, Yeshua said, You are Shimon bar Yochanan. You'll be known as Kepha, 
means rock. So John's gospel has it that Yeshua was walking near John the Baptist and two of John's disciples. John says, Hey, look, God's Lamb. And quickly, John's two disciples go after Jesus. They caught up to him, asked him where he was staying. It was Capernaum at this time. And one of the two of those disciples was Andrew, who took Christ to his brother Shimon bar Yochanan, where Yeshua said he'd be called Kepha, the rock, from here on. So what we find is that Andrew was first a disciple of John the Baptist. But he left him to become one of Christ's original twelve. We don't know what happened to the other disciple of John who tagged along. And according to John, it was Yeshua who gave Simon his nickname of Kepha, Peter, the rock. Okay, next week we'll continue with Yeshua calling his first disciples and then move on into chapter 5.